0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Christine Evans about her book, Between Truth and Time, A History of Soviet Central Television, published by Yale University Press. So welcome to New Books in Russian Studies, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad to talk to you about this book. I found it really interesting, and there were a lot uh, television shows on Soviet uh, uh, television in the 60s and 70s. And so I'm looking forward to talking to you about them and, and um, trying to understand more about the Soviet system through these television programs. But before we uh, get into the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying Russia?
1: My story is fairly typical for a bunch of us who um, started at the same kind of generational cohort of people who were in high school kind of just before or just after the end of the Soviet Union. Um, So I studied with a lot of students whose families had come in the 80s or the early 90s um, from the former Soviet Union. Um, They were my classmates. And um, I think, too, you know, I was one of those kind of pretentious high school students who thought, like, I'm going to study a difficult language and get a job. Um, So it was quite you know, focused on um, that kind of quite practical thinking. But then I went there and, you know, I have a lot of uh, my family background on my father's side is Quaker. They're all quite puritanical. And I just found that um, when I was there, I really fell in love with the habit of staying up late, drinking by a campfire, singing songs, you know, having serious conversations very early in a relationship about important things. Um, So once I started traveling there, I sort of couldn't stop and and just enjoyed that aspect of, of Russian life
0: hmm. And, but of course, it wasn't just the, uh, the drinking and the deep conversations that you enjoyed, because you went on to actually study the Soviet Union, and, um, in particular, Soviet Central Television, which is the topic of this book. What got you interested in that as a topic of research?
1: Well, you know, my parents didn't have cable when I was a child. And so I grew up watching, you know, 1960s and 70s and 80s US sitcoms and syndication, um, as well as game shows, the kind of stuff that's on in the daytime. And um, once I started traveling to Russia in the 1990s, I made friends with a radio journalist in the city of Ivanova. Um, and I also, you know, like any normal person, spent time watching television um, along with the people I met there and was impressed by some of the more kind of memorable shows of the 1990s, like the show Kukli or Puppets um, that all of my Russian friends were watching. Uh, so when I started looking for a dissertation topic, in the early 2000s, you know, reality television was getting really big and it was sort of weird, like how much it was displacing sitcoms um, that I had watched as a child. And I, you know, it sort of occurred to me that something big was happening in television in general. Um, and that maybe there wasn't that much work on Soviet television, and maybe that way I could explore a lot of questions that had occurred to me over the years about, you know, what are really the differences between Soviet and American culture, what kinds of broader shifts during the Cold War might explain changes in both places, um, and I could do that while having a dissertation topic that would be actively very fun to
0: research. Yeah, and that, those are always the best kind of dissertation topics. And uh, speaking of fun... Uh, one of the things that you point out early on in the book is that um, Soviet, the Soviet authorities viewed television as something that should be festive. So can you give us a brief history of television in the Soviet Union and explain why um, festivity was such an important component of it?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, television technology, it's important to say, you know, people assume it developed later in the Soviet Union, that they were always technically behind, but this, of course, is not true. Um, and it developed on an experimental basis in the Soviet Union at about the same time as, as other places in the 1930s. Um, but given the impact of World War II, you know, the manufacturing of sets and the expansion of the network was really delayed, Um, And along with the rest of Europe in the 1950s, um, Soviet television begins to emerge in that period. So it becomes really associated with kind of hopes that were taking place across Europe about a transformation of culture after uh, the horrible costs of World War II, um, and at the same time with the Cold War. Um, And then for Soviet television, I should say it's not really, depends which authorities we're talking about, you know, specifically the ones who felt that it should be um, a truly festive kind of disruptive medium that would transform individual viewers um, into believers in Soviet ideology, <laughs> mobilize them to build, build, construct the revolution. Um, those people were the kind of enthusiastic um, workers of in central television themselves, rather than necessarily uh, those above them. Although those who supervised their work also came to share at least some of those values over time. Um, so they're working at the moment in Soviet history known as the thaw. Um, where there's these big hopes for the transformation of of Soviet Soviet culture um, in a more kind of spontaneous direction that will help finally fulfill the revolution's original goals. Um, And so television is eager to take its place alongside other arts in in doing this. So this is the sense in which um, there's so much excitement around the medium and the sense that it can, rather than, as we think of television, um, you know, thanks to the Frankfurt School in the West as a pacifying medium that locks us in our homes, Soviet television was imagined by its early producers as something that would do the opposite of that, It would engage and make audiences participatory. Um, A wonderful colleague of mine, Sabina Mihaljic, has argued that this is a kind of early origins of social media in a way and kind of web 2.0, things that are meant to be viewer-driven and participatory. Uh, but this is coming out of the Socialist Project, or at least it was anticipated there.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And obviously, as part of this Socialist Project and the the television's role and television programming's role in that is who is on the screen. So tell us about who, who was selected to be on screen, because obviously, this is a visual medium. Uh, what criteria, what were they supposed to represent? Um, what were they supposed to inspire in the audiences that were watching these programs? So in some sense, you know being on screen was
1: um, for some in some ways quite tightly controlled um, and there were you know, elaborate regulations by the 1970s over, you know, what your position within the Soviet governing hierarchy was determined whether you could be shown in close-up or from a kind of above-the-waist shot that was more distant. Um, And there was quite a bit of attention to this sort of, sort of, who specifically was allowed to be on air. Um, Rather, in addition to what was actually said, right, certain people simply could not be seen. Um, But at the same time, you know, in the early years, they were simply open auditions and lots of people who hadn't found a job at another place. Um, as Kristen Rotha has shown, you know, people came from all kinds of educational backgrounds um, and, and made it into television. So some of the most famous television um, performers were also just, you know, had been aspiring actors who hadn't found positions in a theater in Moscow. They want, didn't want to be in the provinces. Um, so within the sets of people who did appear Um, You could divide them, you know, certainly there were television professionals, so hosts and um, journalists of various kinds who appeared on air, and they had a kind of dual role as model people whose personas were supposed to kind of fulfill um, an idea of what Soviet people should aspire to be like as kind of educated, reasoning, um, independently thinking, but still deeply party loyal um, individuals. Um, and at the same time, representatives of a responsive state, right? They were meant to convey their interest in viewers as individuals, to feel that they were guests in the home, and all of those things. As they then had to interact with other people who they would um, be appear alongside, invite into the studio, go out and meet. Who were often um, in the '60s were often kind of uh, other intellectuals. When the when television only reached Moscow and its outskirts um, from central television, they. You know, often invited people uh, much like themselves or from even higher ranking cultural media. So, ballet dancers and writers frequently on the air um, and kind of government officials as tele- central television's audience expanded said, you know, you need to include more regular people, right? This is not the kind of artistic broadcasting service. This is meant to be something that's relatable to our pro- provincial viewers. And so they were under pressure to kind of increasingly feature people who work in factories, collective farmers. Um, and once they did, you know, many of them were in fact interested in this, but it raised all kinds of problems where you, you need they need to look good. They need to sound good, but this is very difficult, it, you know, there's a reason why people, professionals, appear on television. It's a, it's a difficult <laughs> skill, um, and so there was a desire to expose the what, ima- what were imagined to be the wonderful inner qualities um, of these regular working people. In many cases, they probably were. Um, but how to make the camera see that and be able to represent that appropriately? You know, unlike much of contemporary reality television, where it's okay to sort of um, mock and expose for um, expose the lack of education or polish in working class people, you know, that wasn't okay on Soviet television. We needed to make them look somewhat good and people complained um, when they failed. So there's a few different kinds of people who, who would appear and there was much debate about how they should relate to one another, that the journalists are being too arrogant and other problems like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, one of the interesting uh, lines in the book is this idea of the responsive state, of television as being um, participatory rather than passive, and most of us probably don't think of audience research when we think of the Soviet Union, and yet the staff at Central Television did really want to know who was watching, what they were watching, how to reach audiences, uh, in part for their ideological mission, but also a desire to be responsive or a, a mandate to be responsive. So, how did they gather information about audience response, and what impact did this information have on scheduling and other aspects of programming?
1: So Central Television was definitely always interested in audience response, Um, but for quite some time in the early years, they could kind of, when their audience was still quite small and limited to Moscow, they would sometimes rely on things like phone calls to the studio or rumors that they or you know conversations they overheard in the tram um about you know their own programming and they would report back to their colleagues about you know everyone in the tram loved the last episode of our particular broadcast um but as i noticed that in the second half of the 1960s um which is i think a kind of key turning point Um, for central television and the Soviet project as a whole is a sort of loss of optimism. So after Khrushchev's ouster, um, Khrushchev having been extremely optimistic about the imminent arrival of communism, um, after he's gone and they kind of, as the Cold Cold War foreign broadcasting is another important kind of competitor and concern for television producers where they're meant to be able to respond to it and to provide an alternative to listening to foreign radio broadcasts like BBC um, or Voice of America. Um, So as they're kind of more anxious about the impact of those things, whether it's really working in their goals of mobilizing people, um, they become much more concerned and much more interested in finding out what's really happening with audiences beyond, especially as the audience is also growing in this period, beyond Moscow. And they can't rely on their own social circles to provide feedback. Um, So certainly the sociological research that was conducted internally and also by newspapers um, that were at the forefront of this kind of research. Um, you know, it was methodologically flawed, but I think it's also important to remember that a lot of audience research in Western <laughs> broadcasting services is also quite weak. Right? We don't. You know, the Nielsen system is not perfect; doesn't give us a real picture. Um, of course, the choices are always constrained to what's actually on already, rather than what people might want. Um, so they do. You know, it is limited in its methodological reach, but at the same time, you know, they do major surveys of thousands of people in cities. Um, At the same time, though, they continue to rely on their more traditional um, forms of feedback that were drawn from Soviet kind of governing institutions and the press, um, including the practice of receiving and working with letters from viewers where they would analyze and respond in really astonishing detail um, and thoroughness with a staff of hundreds of people to to audience letters that were coming in by the tens of thousands by the mid-60s, and they really did respond to most of them, when they could, um, so the sense that letters were a were kind of model audience—people who were motivated enough to write a letter were a more significant and important audience to them than, you know, viewers who kind of were not interested or simply requested particular movies be on television. They often looked kind of down their noses at viewers like that, and were interested in the ones that wanted to debate with them. So this kind of, you know, small model audience recurs over and over, and you know, by the mid '70s that kind of work with letters has become more important again than than most sociological surveys um, Mm -hmm. which really flourished in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. Um, So once they, so you asked about scheduling as well, right? So this, once they um, kind of begin to get this feedback, it's clear that people dramatically prefer entertainment programming, which of course they in some sense knew from letters before, Um, but this process of kind of learning about audience tastes um, and designing a schedule at the same time, because at the moment where they're getting the sociological data, they're also trying to decide how to design a schedule for Channel One, Central Television, when it becomes a nationwide service, which it does at the end of 1967. So they're thinking about this as they're thinking about how to design the schedule. They have these elaborate and very interesting debates about um, how to structure the schedule you know, if Channel One Central Television is gonna compete with the local broadcasting service, you know, you need to make sure that there's not a movie on locally against the national news program, for example, that this kind of competition is a big problem. Um, And what they decide I found it really striking Um, which is basically to accept the fact that there's a kind of prime time in the schedule. When most viewers are gathered, it's the largest audience. So they're not just measuring taste, but also, of course, when do people watch, right? Who's watching? Um, And they find out what times people are actually at their sets, because, of course, people have jobs and other things. Um, And they decide that those times should largely be reserved for entertainment programming. Um, and they sort of create what they call a layer cake strategy, where they put one new high profile program, which is the new evening news program also created for this moment, a kind of central television going national called Vremia or Time. Um, and they put that in the middle. It's a kind of healthy filling of a, a layer cake um, made of, of entertainment content that's before and after. And what was really striking to me was complaints from the producers of directly propagandistic content, which by the late 60s is already in its own separate office. They're not part of news. They're not part of entertainment. They're the propaganda desk. And it was the worst and least prestigious place to work. And they constantly complained that they can't get their shows on the air during those primetime hours. And so, you know, that was very obviously kind of does not fit with stereotypes about uh, Soviet media, right. They kind of recognize the need to please and engage the audience and that that can be a propaganda goal as well, right. For people to enjoy a nice evening can also be part of the the Soviet promise.
0: Mm-hmm. And thinking about this, uh, the timing, the scheduling, um, television, um, entertainment. It was interesting to me this um, idea of television as event. And you particular, you start off by talking about the show The Little Blue Flame and how that um, came to represent him. This idea of making um, kind of some. Uh, social rituals uh, around television. So can you tell us about Little Blue Flame and and why that was an important um, show in in understanding the way in which central television began approaching uh, both the entertainment value and the scheduling of shows?
1: Yeah, so Little Blue Flame, I should say, was a variety show, um, and it featured Soviet and foreign musical performers, actors, comedians, um, and they would perform, but they, in between, they would dance with one another and eat some grapes and be socializing in a set that was designed to look like a cafe or a restaurant. So they're kind of gathered around these small tables, socializing and interacting. Um, and it was modeled on um, these new kind of cafes that were spaces of, of socializing in Moscow during the Thaw as well, um, where students would gather and read poetry um, and other things like that. They were very popular kind of new Thaw settings. Um, so it was designed to kind of present a vision of society in this new harmonious thaw model, um, and included here too, I should say, were also prize-winning workers um, and later the Soviet cosmonauts who would kind of mingle with the artistic elite as though there were kind of no divides between these different groups. Um, and given this kind of you know harmonious relationship between different kinds of people, there was no sort of open discussion about how particular performers would get invited onto the show um, while others would never be able to appear, right? You know, you don't get to pick the gifts that you're given. Um, But since initially the show was weekly, which is extremely often in the world of television production, requires a lot of effort to book acts at that kind of pace, um, the level of, of shows, especially outside the special holiday broadcasts, um was not always as high as audiences would want it to be. And um, there were a lot of complaints about um, broadcasts except for the holiday ones, when they had managed to get better acts because in order to kind of fit with the holiday calendar that was governing a lot of Soviet culture. Um, so kind of slowly, as a result of these pressures of producing the show and audience dissatisfaction, The show was transformed into a a holiday broadcast that was only on four to five times a year, a major state holidays, which allowed producers to plan in advance. And also was a really great way for the Soviet Union to celebrate holidays on television. You know, there's more famous are the parades on Red Square that I think lots of Americans Um, and others got to see live during the Cold War, and that gave you a certain image of what Soviet television was like. But those were kind of in the middle of the day and then would be followed by, you know, hours, and really, as I found in the archives, days and weeks of special programming that was the most popular entertainment content. Um, So these, but the, the kind of, counterpart to the Red Square Parade then was this kind of holiday variety show, which was great because you could adjust it to the political circumstances. You know, add an act here, exclude one here at the last minute because of some political change in their country um, in in response to whatever immediate political needs. Um, But the question of selection was really a problem um, because there was no clear way of measuring popular tastes um, and all sorts of very popular artists could never hope to appear on the show. Um, And there were, you know, the show kind of tried to handle this awkwardly in various ways, you know, making jokes about how the acts were selected or um, in one New Year's broadcast, they would, you know, have the artists actually transform into pilots from a recent military movie and then fly to certain viewers to give them the gift of a particular song. But it was terribly kind of uh, highly (laughs) overwrought um, and overdetermined. Um, And the changes can be really dramatic in response to these political issues, especially around foreign performers. So, you know, on New Year's Eve, uh, 1967, 68, there were lots and lots of foreign performers, especially from Eastern Europe. Um, And then after the invasion of Czechoslovakia in August 1968, there were the following New Year's zero foreign acts. And so viewers, of course, would notice these kinds of changes. And it's, you know, quite difficult to deal with.
0: Mm -hmm. And... That leads us actually the lack of transparency about who gets selected to perform uh, feeds right into the television show song of the year, which uh, that for me was particularly fascinating in the way in which uh, It transitioned from a jury selection uh, process to uh, adding new genres and, and really trying to reach out to a mass youth audience so what does the evolution of Song of the Year tell us about central television, but also about how the um, Soviet authorities were pa- perhaps were trying to engage um, Soviet citizens into um, this managed democracy that um, existed?
1: Yeah, so it's Song of the Year, in some ways, you know, was designed to solve a lot of the problems that were posed by Little Blue Flame. So kind of making the song selection process actually totally explicit and limiting competition to Soviet songs. So no more issues with particular foreign performers. Um, and it was a contest show based on audience votes, which I found in itself surprising for, for you know, 1970, which is the year that it started. Um, and then, although the show, you know, kind of, try to avoid the word voting or would describe viewer, it was quite, quite elaborate and and awkward how they would, you know, talk about this process of voting for your favorites as everything but voting for your favorites, you know, maybe people are expressing what they think everyone in the Soviet Union will agree were the best songs of this year, right, sort of subordinating their own preferences in favor of a collective discussion. so I was really struck by, you know, how much of this was, was spread throughout the year in these kind of short teaser broadcasts that would instruct viewers how to participate. Um, and then really, uh, you know, it was very striking, this explicit tinkering from year to year in the format. You know, I was watching them on DVD before. Now, of course, you can stream them all online. But back when I was writing this, you still had to um, actually get discs for them. Um, you know, I'm watching them all on DVD, one after another, and, you know, I had no idea what was coming next, because it, the changes could be quite dramatic, um, which, you know, again, kind of undermines your sense of a of a state that is, you know, so firm and clear in its ideological guidelines, which, of course, a terrible straw man, but, you know, one mm-hmm. comes in with these things if you grew up in the United States. Um, so this sense of, yeah, kind of, altering the show, dealing with the question of youth ta- tastes, kind of making the different tastes of young people explicit, and then trying to ameliorate that, bringing people together. Um, and what I think this tells us about Soviet society is that, you know, especially in the, after the late 1960s, with Czechoslovakia, and also the abandonment of plans for significant economic reform that Kosygin had put forward in the late 60s, the state was kind of looking for ways to kind of unify and mobilize the Soviet Public without referring to necessarily shared belief in the sort of immediate arrival of communism, right, what binds us together and how can we reach consensus without that, right, using voting or conversation in a public sphere where we talk about um, public opinion and what it reflects. Um, you know, or the expectation of any kind of immediate improvement in material conditions necessarily, right? What do we still share? So that left this kind of set of tools for public deliberation, displaying public opinion, the role of authorities in adjudicating it. These were all sort of central themes. Um, but I think also important for you know seeing the connection between this period as a kind of creative, generative period of change that helped shape the present, um, is the the heavy use of the memory of World War II. Um, and to a much lesser extent, the the Civil War, um, as a kind of shared memory, so unifying people through kind of reverence for past sacrifices, all these kind of basic human emotions, such as love and sadness, maybe set up actually not connected to the war, but also very unifying, um, that could, you know, they could acknowledge that there were social fissures, but then demonstrate that there were these kind of shared values that could overcome those fissures, um, and so they kind of developed this set of tools with a little bit of limited, kind of carefully controlled democratic proceduralism, deliberation, um, and shared patriotism, you know, all kind of kept within this, the seemingly safe realm of popular culture, which is, of course, actually quite politicized during the Cold War. So it's, you know, highly political, this conversation, even though it's this the safe territory.
0: Mm-hmm. Well... The musical shows, uh, I think, were um, very intriguing to me, Uh, but I have to say that my favorite chapter title is uh, your chapter on news programming, which you called Time and the Problem of Boredom. And Time, as you already mentioned, was the primary news show, and and I suspect that the problem of boredom is probably self-explanatory, but there was a lot of concern that um, Soviet citizens were tuning in for entertainment and, and actually weren't interested in the more Um, uh, The programs that were designed to be more educational or ideological. So what um, what did they try to do to make news less boring and to get uh, uh, viewers to be engaged. So,
1: I mean, I should say that at some point, um, you know, what I really found was a kind of split between domestic news and foreign news, where, you know, when they first create Time, um, and it airs on January 1st, 1968, um, it's to address the boredom of of already existing TV news programs to kind of raise television news's status, um, and to create a show that would be genuinely dynamic and exciting. And the name was meant to be not very significant, not just a kind of trite thing, but actually this was going to be a portrait of the present time. Um, And so I think one reason boredom, you know, boredom, as you said, is always a problem for any kind of broadcasters, even if they're not motivated by kind of revenue from advertising, Um, you know, why bother if you're not going to interest the audience? Um, But it was a really big problem in the Soviet Union um, because domestic news in particular was so central to Soviet ideology and the state's goals. Um, And the news was really supposed to reveal the kind of gradual unfolding of history as communism drew nearer. you know, progress being, you know, built upon year by year, um, you know, which is the only real source of the Communist Party's legitimacy, right? That we are leading you toward communism successfully. Um, So unlike capitalist world news, where the news is free to emphasize conflict and uncertainty, to really central features of human life, right? Um, You know, the Soviet news had to do something much more... um, in a way, although the show is called Time, sort of timeless, right? It needed to document progress, but, you know, that could mean interviewing a collective farmer in the field, talking about how well the harvest had gone, and it wasn't clear whether that had been filmed in 1975 or, you know, 1971. Like, it didn't really matter. The same event could have happened at any time, and viewers, including within Central Television, quickly noticed this, Um, and those who kind of cared about the success of news as an ideological Projects um, were very disturbed by this. Um, and then this was all, of course, heightened by the fear of um, Cold War foreign radio broadcasting and listening among Soviet viewers, which they knew was extensive because that had also been covered in these sociological surveys, is how much are people listening to foreign radio broadcasts? Um, and here was this kind of exciting and revelatory foreign news. Um, and, you know, what if Soviet news couldn't compete? So that kind of made it much more serious concern. Um, and so, you know, they did try with, with Frémia in its early years in particular, um, to make segments very short. They were explicitly watching BBC news broadcasts internally and discussing what made them so dynamic, certain kinds of cutting and camera work. It was also coming out of a kind of return to the work of Giga Vertov that happened in the mid-60s, his works were re- reissued, um, and television workers are very kind of enthusiastic about the Soviet avant-garde and early documentary, um, and wanted to link themselves to that and felt that kind of dynamic kind of camera work could make their show exciting too. But the problem was that that viewers, especially older viewers in the provinces who are an important political constituency, found it confusing. You know 20 seconds with no text of people, you know, fishing or whatever was not what is happening, <laughs> was uh, some feedback that they got from viewers that this was disorienting, not dynamic, right? So gradually, you know, they, and then they, they have kind of competing theories of what would be interesting. So not just speed. That was one theory of what would make it exciting, but another theory was about depth, right? Again, with these model people looking into the souls of model workers and party officials and others, and you know you can't do that in 20 seconds with no voiceover, right? You have to take your time. So they talk about that internally, and their desire to do that kind of uh, transformative broadcasting to make uh, to reach people through these deep portraits actually slows things down a lot. (laughs) So they can't achieve the dynamism, um, even if it were possible to do it without confusing people. Um, So what happens is they kind of give up to a certain extent on domestic news um, and begin implementing all their ideas for dynamic news broadcasting in the realm of foreign news. So they kind of foreign news becomes increasingly interesting, has high-profile commentators that are well-paid experts who can comment on international news. And then they create separate shows that are devoted exclusively to foreign news. Um, And this is all part of a kind of response in the Cold War to, you know, the voices over Soviet radio from foreign broadcasters. We're going to give our own interpretation and we need really good guys. But they develop these very popular, really interesting shows that are about conflict and unpredictability and all these recognizable themes. So it ends up with this kind of split between the two kinds of news that's extremely awkward um, for broadcasters.
0: Hmm. Almost all this, I guess all the shows we've talked about so far have um, either the news, which in a sense is documentary, and you referred to uh, looking back to documentary filmmakers in in the way in which they were trying to um, produce these new shows, but also Song of the Year, Little Blue Flame. These are kind of live shows. And so why did television programmers turn away from documentary um, modes of uh, shows to fiction um, in the form of the television miniseries, which became the kind of the driving force behind Soviet television, I believe, in the 70s? Yeah,
1: so uh, that was a very striking kind of revelation also that um, the sense that, you know, as they, the same moment of kind of losing confidence after the early 1960s um, and the sense that, you know, guys, it's not working, right? Early television critics had called for television journalists to simply take cameras out into the street, um, show people walking down the street, right? All of that was going to allow people to look into the present reality and see its transformation in the writings of this one, particularly enthusiastic early television critic who you know was writing in 1959 1960 um, as time wears on you know they're they're simply not as convinced as he was that this is really working for viewers and that they're really seeing the kinds of things they want to see um, and that they want viewers to see and so they become less and less confident that this can be done through documentary means and this includes all the experiences with trying to make um, regular workers and collective farmers look really good and convincing on television. They had, you know, a really high bar for what was supposed to happen inside a viewer as they watched someone in this, this kind of documentary portraiture in their kind of critical writings. It's very hard. It's probably impossible, right? And so... There's this, I remember sitting and reading, you know, articles I'd photocopied in the kind of professional journal of, of television and radio producers, um, where they're like, you know, we still hold the same value articulated by this particular famous early, early critic, Vladimir Sapak, um, but, you know, we've now learned that we shouldn't use documentary. Actually, what we need to accomplish this are actors in a film fictional setting. <laughs> and so, you know, it offers you much more control over the kind of, you know, narrative, shots, right? You have a professional who's conveying precisely what they're meant to convey, or at least ideally that's what's supposed to happen, Um, you know, gives you at least the illusion of greater control of a reception. So um, this, this kind of moment of, of recognizing that documentary, (laughs) maybe let's consider what we can do with serial fiction. (laughs) So,
0: Yeah. And you call the miniseries 17 Moments in Spring as perhaps the single most iconic cultural product of the Brezhnev era, which is quite a statement for a television series. Um, So what was so important about this television show?
1: Well, I'm far from the first person to call it that, I'm sure. Um, There's quite a few other people who've uh, mentioned or written about this show because it is Probably the so it's simply the most popular um, television miniseries from this period. It was hugely popular at the time it was initially broadcast, and then it's been rebroadcast. Um, extensively since then Um, but most famously it generated you know thousands of jokes really from the very first airing and onward if you google um, 17 moments of spring and jokes even in English you know translated versions of this whole genre of Russian humor will come up because there's something so unusual about the film's aesthetics um, and the way that you know the action is unbelievably slow and yet it's a spy serial which you would think would be it is quite suspenseful but at the same time incredibly slowly paced um, the character is a kind of master spy, but he's also kind of terribly ponderous. Um, uh, another colleague, Yelena Prokhorova, once remarked that you know, in the one of the final series, he actually lies down and takes a nap. You know, <laughs> sort of, he feeds the fish. And there's all these moments where it's kind of deeply um, plotting and it's and it's and contemplative and it's pacing. Um, so it's important because people reacted to it so strongly. Um, at the time. Um, And I think also because, you know, it reveals a lot about um, the kind of desire to explore what a new kind of um, of hero would look like in Soviet culture. Um, You know, who could... Um, I think we've written, we've we've seen a lot of work, understandably, about dealing with Stalinism that um, takes place, you know, during the fall when these things are being addressed very explicitly um, by Khrushchev himself, right, with the um, secret speech and other really public, well, semi-public, right, (laughs) ways of addressing um, the Stalin cult and its damage, but they continue within Soviet kind of cultural institutions, they continue to wrestle with, you know, how to deal with Stalinism for many you know, for decades afterwards. And this this broadcast in particular kind of proposes an alternative to Stalin, um, a new kind of hero who's able to act, who hasn't been damaged by um, living under Stalin's leadership um, and who could provide a kind of new model of a sort of masculine Soviet hero.
0: Um, We'll leave uh, fictionalized television and go back to... um... Uh, live event television with the Soviet game shows. And I was really struck by the popularity of game shows on Soviet television. I guess somehow to me, they seem very capitalistic um, in terms of winning prizes. Um, But also, the game shows would raise the same kind of questions as the voting for the songs, the best songs on Song of the Year. And how did they deal with judging, with rules, with um, fair play, and what kind of tensions were um, on display or did uh, either the programmers perceive and try to work through or did audiences perceive? And in particular, the two shows that you talk about, KVN and Let's Go Girls, which is, um, I think, a a very intriguing show to discuss (laughs) in this context.
1: yeah um yeah i was surprised by that as well you know i had this moment um when i was just starting my research like as a second year graduate student um where i went into the archive actually the library the lennon library Um, And at that time, all the kind of Soviet books from after Stalin were in a separate reading room um, because I think they were considered to be like the least interesting of all. But all all the books that I wanted were in that section, understandably. Um, And I went in there and I was, you know, I saw this, I got this card catalog drawer and there were so many books that had, that were clearly about some, it was under radio and television and it was just the letters KPN or Kaven in Russian. Um, It was, you know, sometimes repeated three times in a row but one with an exclamation point and one with a question mark or what is kvn (laughs) um they you know it's like i'm never going to figure out what this is so i had to ask the archivist and she was like oh my god i can't even explain you know this is this thing it's so big and then finally she managed to sort of explain that this is a particular show um and it's a kind of game show um and so you know this was obviously very fascinating and indeed um you know i think you know, game shows in the Soviet Union provided a kind of opportunity because, you know, they were known to be a popular form um, from, you know, there had been radio quizzes in the Soviet Union as well as in the West, right, where you you could really measure popular participation because people would write in, and it was a very, known to be a very popular, engaging form, Um, but at the same time, it had certain resemblances with, again, these kind of avant-garde thinkers that central television staff, the most ambitious of them, of course not all of them, um, were interested in linking themselves to and identifying with. So particularly kind of um, mass festivals um, from the very early post-revolutionary period, so they write about this this game show format as if it's a kind of renewed mass festival because it can engage people as participants across vast geographic spaces um, live in the same moment um, and they're and they're very much participatory. Um, the idea is you play along at home, right, in the game show, and so that was something that was kind of artistically and ideologically very valuable in the Soviet Union. Um, but as I said, right, these these are kind of competitive formats. And there's, of course, there's a ton of competition in the Soviet Union. It's nothing unusual about the fact that it was competitive, right? You could compete in everything, production, ballet, you know, internationally and many things. But all those things had well-established rules or way of judging the game. And what was different about game shows is that they're invented from whole cloth. And so these questions of judging and how to make the rules how to establish, especially when television is so secret and so centralized, you know, how do you know people are playing fair? Um, All that's very difficult. And, you know, lucky for me as a researcher, these shows um, in part because of their ambitions to be kind of really mass participatory theatrical um, forms, there were the, the producers wrote guidebooks for kind of local participants who were going to stage these things at their school or kind of culture club in their village. Um, so they have these elaborate discussions of their thinking and how one should organize the game and what it all meant. And these sort of amazing quotations would come out, where they're describing the jury on Kavayin as a kind of better version of the Politburo, where, well, there's this group of leaders, and of course, you know, they rule by consensus. But of course, some of them will emerge as more right, th- more often than others, and the others will naturally accept their authority. Right? <laughs> these kinds of wild parallels with the Soviet political system, uh, but imagined as not having anyone. and Then they would say who shouldn't be on the jury, right? People who are pompous, who talk too long long-winded speeches right are very full of themselves those guys or who insist on always being right can't work with others right so you know it's a kind of rethinking what leadership should be like in this through this format mm-hmm. um, and so you know there were there were was focused on student youth so it was quite um focused at least initially on kind of elites in a way right people who are studying in prestigious institutes initially in moscow but then under the same pressure to include people in the provinces and and workers. Um, They have to expand their teams and start having non-student teams by the late 60s. Um, But then again, after this kind of after 68, um, there's this effort to include more working class participants really explicitly. um, And that's where we get Let's Go Girls and also had a counterpart, Let's Go Guys, um, that were Let's Go Girls was particularly modeled on kind of um, actually, you know, (laughs) it's strikingly similar to kind of contemporary debates around US universities now about job placement, that we have these skill gaps, right? And that we need to fill them with people who are willing to work in low status jobs, say for maybe not that much money. We don't have enough of those people, right? Because we're not willing to pay them more. Well, the Soviet Union had the same problem, right? They really wanted to raise the prestige of particular kind of low status jobs working in a shop, you know being a baker, you know perfectly lovely professions but ones that weren't highly culturally or economically rewarded at the time. and so they want to convince people that these are really great jobs and they should consider applying for them and so they have this show where women are meant to young working class women um, who worked in these fields were displayed and they competed in their profession and then they would do various, kind of domestic and beauty contest things where there was a dancing competition, which is quite difficult to watch because they're sort of wearing their slim sweaters and like bouncing up and down awkwardly, kind of displaying their dancing abilities, which is sort of display of their body in a certain way. And there was a contest of who could vacuum up, you know, confetti from a a carpet the fastest, right? So sort of showing your preparation as a kind of modern skilled housewife, your taste. Um, So it was heavily gendered um, and aimed at this kind of particular demographic, Um, but still with audience voting for a winner and all these kind of um, exciting... Uh, viewer possibilities for viewer engagement, you know, submitting salad recipes um, that the girls would then prepare and things like that. So it was quite, quite. also drew on these kind of ideas of engaging the audience and and, um, exploring
0: these kind of cultural problems. Mm -hmm. In all of these shows, as you've already mentioned, there was an attempt to try and create some kind of unified um, public with unified values, legitimizing um, the state's authority, performing the state's responsiveness, whether that was um, through these game shows or um, creating a new model hero in 17 Moments in Spring. How successful was state television or at least central television in doing this? So, you know, where did they fail to accomplish those goals? Where did they succeed? Um, as much as we can tell from um, audience responses.
1: Yeah I mean I think you know it's it's of course always very hard to say. I mean I think in some ways it follows sort of larger patterns in the sense that um, these shows first we should say that they're they remain extremely popular right. Not not all of them some have been forgotten um, but the ones that I wrote about were popular at the time and remain kind of popular from from in those cases and, and high status and beloved in the present. So there was something very successful about the kind of play that they enabled, the kind of um, the success of the kind of charming performers, right, handsome leads, um, you know, clever young people, right. These are perennials in in good television, and I you know found myself. Also just, um, as I long have, really enjoying the, these, these shows myself as well. And I can see why audiences did at the time also. Um, and they continue to in the present very much. And I think, you know, it's also beyond just reception, right? These, um, some of these critics that I've talked about um, are still on journalism syllabi um, at Moscow State University's very prestigious journalism department. So, you know, they're, they continue to be, the people who created Soviet television are still quite many of them um, who were involved in these particular innovative popular programs remain quite high status and admired um, within institutions that train current central television employees. Um, sorry, there's no more central television. Right. Channel one employees is what I mean. State-owned television. Um, but there is that kind of continuity, and there is a lot of, um, the reason it's possible to misspeak like that is partly that, you know, in my, um, I once visited the set of one of my favorite game shows um, that we haven't talked about, de Kagda, that's been on continuously since 1977. Um that you know in its current format that that show you know there are people there who are still running that show who were involved in the original show right in the 1970s and 80s so if there is actually continuity and leadership constantine erics the current head of channel one um was also was trained in the late 1980s by these kind of game show creating um kind of innovative programmers and so he you know, was influenced by that school of um, of Soviet television that had particular values. Um, So in some sense, you could say it was extremely successful given the prominence of these shows and their, you know, Kavan is still hosted by the same host, right, continuously. So, I mean, it went off the air in the 1970s for a while. It came back in the late 80s and now it's been on on since then. And it's still Alexander Maslakov hosting it. Um, So, at the same time, though, I think, you know, as with kind of Gorbachev himself and the people around him, many of whom were, did come from the media, particularly Alexander Yakovlev, um, some of the most prominent ones. Um, so his kind of cohort of people who are also part of this kind of thinking inside central television, you know, they, they were eager to, um, you know, introduce these kinds of proceduralism. And, you know, in the case of Perestroika, right, television was not particularly involved in revealing... A kind of crimes of the past the way print media were, but they absolutely were focused on the future and what should happen <laughs> in the future, how reforms should go forward, um, including on these shows, some of which, you know, started out as, as trivia contests and became debates about perestroika policies. Um, so, you know, they also kind of planted the seeds of these Procedural forms getting really out of hand when you start having really uncontrolled, um, genuinely spontaneous multi candidate elections under Gorbachev, um, that that went unexpected places for them. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you could also argue that they, given, you know, of course, contemporary Russian television is entirely different in lots of ways, um, but there is some sense of these same strategies of having. Just the right amount of deliberative democracy and proceduralism, but not too much. <laughs> um, and kind of using uh, these kind of emotional and um, history oriented appeals to the shared past and shared values are really central to Putin's media strategy in the present. So, in some sense, they, well, perhaps they also, you know, there's a great deal um, of guilt for some of these um, perestroika era television. Um, executives who feel personally responsible for some of the kind of personal costs that the collapse of the Soviet Union brought to their colleagues um, and to other, to the whole country. Um, so there's, you know, the, the men who led perestroika era television are really not looked upon terribly positively in many ways um, in the present as having kind of been guilty, sharing guilt with Gorbachev for having brought down the system. Um, but at the same time, some of the tools that were created in that period Um, have proved useful again in certain ways. And so I think, you know, that's both a failure and a success in a certain way, depending on your perspective. Mm -hmm.
0: You emphasize uh, that uh, the history of television is a transnational history, and you've talked already about the perceived need and perhaps very real need to compete with uh, foreign broadcasts. So explain for us what was unique and maybe not so unique about Soviet television in these decades that you studied.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you could say, I guess, at the, at the highest level or the broadest level, um, you know, the, the real commitment to kind of demonstrating the arrival of communism. And of course, you can see perestroika, as many people have argued in that same light as an effort to reform the system and finally realize the revolution's goals, right? Not as an effort to reform it out of existence, but as an effort to revitalize it. And that's true in the Thaw as well. Um, And I think, you know, from the the early 1960s through the late 80s, central television does a lot to preserve that kind of um, understanding of what would be positive change and, and also commitment at the same time to kind of ideological goals of preserving this revolutionary project Um, And so, you know, commitment to kind of documenting revolutionary transformation in um, nonfiction genres, this obsession with looking into people's um, inner qualities in this really kind of profound way. But this is not entirely unfamiliar, I suppose, from, from Western television as well. The examination of character, you know, Hollywood contracts, I have been told, include, you know, clauses about how much close-up time people will have. Um, so, you know, it's the idea that this kind of model person thing is perhaps a point of similarity. Um, for me, what struck me, I think, was the, we've already talked about the kind of holiday organization of the um, of the year, though, kind of given this significance of television in all its genres um, toward realizing the rev- the kind of revolutionary goals, um, that the holiday calendar is really strong in a way that you know in U.S. television you know, a major holiday rolls around and you're like, oh man, I'm not going to be able to watch anything on television for like a week because it's going to be all kind of nonsense while everyone's on break. Um, You know, no one watching television at Christmas time is, you know, not that fun. Right. But in the Soviet Union for New Year's, that was the best time to watch TV. So the sense that, you know, holiday calendar was really striking. Um, I think, you know, the lack of one thing that that's come out um, in this kind of growing field of socialist television research that I've been lucky to be part of is, um, the, the real lack, especially in the Soviet Union. So some of these things really, um, Distinguish the Soviet Union from European television, including both Eastern and Western. That that both Eastern European and Western European television had quite a lot of fiction serials set in the home or various kind of intimate settings. Right, we might know from sitcoms or um, soap operas, where you know personal relationships and domestic concerns are the main themes of the show. Romance, right? Um, how will young people find themselves? Um, And in the Soviet context, that was really a problem. And that's why something like, you know, 17 Moments of Spring is the most famous show, is that it's about these, like, deeply public concerns, right? It's a secret thing. He has some kind of quasi-family, maybe. Um, You know, no one knows he's working, but at the same time, his whole life is totally dedicated to public Um, geopolitical, historical problems, you know, anything but um, personal life and the, although you get a certain amount of romance generated by precisely how much he denigrates the private, right, and that's a kind of noble thing, Um, but this, there really are not very many Soviet um, kind of equivalents of a soap opera, there's very few, vanishingly few, Uh, And that really does distinguish it from even other Eastern European television services to the point where I saw documents where um, Soviet television executives would go abroad the Eastern European, you know, partner countries um, to view their television movies and consider purchasing them for Soviet television. Um, and at some point, a television executive comes back to Moscow and says, you know, I went to Czechoslovakia and I couldn't buy any of that stuff because it was all about, you know, it's as if there's nothing outside the walls of the house. Their concerns are entirely private. It's totally inappropriate for our television. Um, and yet, um, with another hand, they're urging people, you know, broadcasters, and I think it was East Germany, um, no, it was in Czechoslovakia. they were urging them to mimic East Germany and to have a lot of such shows that would help people disconnect from politics right they 're trying to pacify some audiences but not their own at home yeah. um, and so that that sense of a special mission as the first revolutionary state and the one that has to be ahead of the other Eastern Bloc countries some compromises were not acceptable to them, um, and that was very striking
0: too. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that some of these television shows are streaming. So if our audiences, our listeners, or those who read the book, want to actually catch up on um, back episodes of Song of the Year or to watch 17 Moments in Spring, where might they find them? Well, YouTube is the most obvious um, source. There's quite, you know, given
1: the kind of... um, for better or worse, um, poor enforcement of copyright for, you know, Soviet cultural products. Um, You know, there's quite a bit that's on YouTube or that's been put there even by the producers. Um, So many, you know, in some, some of these television movies um, were produced for television by Soviet film studios. So they were now the film studios have their own YouTube channels and you can watch them there. Um, The best services are really these online um, subscription services for um, Russian speaking immigrants and communities inside the United States and Canada. Um, So, you know, there are a lot of these different services where for, you know, a few pennies an hour, you can watch the content streaming. Um, Some you don't even have to pay a monthly fee. Anyway, it's pretty cheap. So um, I think that's how most kind of Russian speakers watch them. And usually the websites are not in English. So you do need to have some Russian and they don't have subtitled um, Version. So you have to be a Russian speaker to enjoy some of the more kind of deep cuts from the Soviet archive. <laughs> um, but a lot is on YouTube, and if you if you search for some of the names of the shows that are, you know are translated in my book, um, and YouTube, um, particularly some of the, the game shows, and my favorite one, um, What Where When or Stogde Kagda, Kogda, is still on the air. So they have back episodes, you know, as part of their promotional efforts, and they have their own website as well. Um, so those are quite easy to find with, including with kind of you know English language or at least Latin alphabet um, search terms. Mm.
0: Great. So it's a multimedia uh, experience. We can read your book and go watch the television shows. Oh, I recommend it. Yes. (laughs) So thank you very much for your time to talk about this book. And I'd like to close with uh, what is kind of our traditional question here on the New Books Network. What are you working on now? Oh, I'm working actually with a colleague in Sweden on a project um, on – Uh, The history of
1: satellite broadcasting, so how it's look more at the kind of media, the infrastructures that underlie contemporary media. So how satellite um, earth stations and um, satellites themselves, how the U.S. and the Soviet Union and Western Europeans um, and the rest of the world really kind of developed this global satellite technology um, that now underlies, you know, our cell phone communications and many other kind of aspects of modern life during the Cold War.
0: Wow, that sounds like quite a project, um, very extensive, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of new technological vocabulary you've had to learn for this. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, well, good. Well, we look forward to that book coming out in the future, but for now, thank you very much for um, uh, being part of the New Books Network, and I enjoyed talking to you about your book. Thank you so much for taking the time to read it and inviting me.